Luke chapter 13, verse 23, someone asked Jesus, they said, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Notice what he says here. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Everybody, if you will, do a little call and response here. Let's say find. Whose initiative is finding? Ours or God's? Ours. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Scott McKnight, who's a New Testament scholar, actually wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says this. He said, you can avoid these texts if you wish, but anyone who has spent much time with judgment text in the Bible knows that the Bible teaches that our final destiny is determined by works. We may be saved by faith, but we are judged by works. Holy heck. That ain't what the Bible said. The Bible says that you're saved by grace through faith and that not of your works so that you may not boast. Right? That's what the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2. But what does the Bible also say? Narrow, narrow is the gate. Small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we've pulled from a lot in this sermon, he says this. To give witness to and to confess the truth of Jesus, but to love the enemy of this truth, who is his enemy and our enemy, with the unconditional love of Jesus Christ, that is the narrow road. I'm going to say it again. To give witness to and to confess the truth of Jesus, but to love the enemy of this truth, who is his enemy and our enemy, with the unconditional love of Jesus Christ, that is the narrow road. What's the narrow road? Love your enemy. Few find it. To believe in Jesus' promise that those who follow shall possess the earth, but to encounter the enemy unarmed, to prefer suffering injustice rather than doing ill, that is the narrow road. To perceive other people as being weak and wrong, but to never judge them, to proclaim the good news to them, that is the narrow road. Few find it. Jesus's salvation is universal. He has died as the second Adam, restoring all that the first Adam has lost. As in Adam, all die, according to Paul in Corinthians, so in Christ shall all be made alive. How many? All. But what is Jesus saying here? Yes, salvation has been made available to every single soul, but few find it. Because what is the way of salvation? It is the Sermon on the Mount. 
The wide gate is the gate of whatever pleases you. And here's what we're told currently. Here's where false prophets have crept in among us. God is unconditional love and religion is not a matter of rules. Religion is a matter of tastes and morality is a matter of choices. They're all the same. Everything is relative. Follow your own star and pleasure for all ways lead to God. Do all ways lead to God. If they did, Jesus would not have had to end the Sermon on the Mount with warning after warning after warning. Here's why I need you to hear me this morning, because this is where our paradigm has to begin to shift right here. Salvation. For the most part, if you grew up in the South, you were saved because you wanted to preserve your life, not because you wanted to forfeit it. Which is why the salvation you experienced has produced nothing like the fruit of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the way you were converted was this. Hell's hot. You're going to it if you don't confess that Jesus is Lord. Right now, if you were to die right now, Alex Grayson, if you were to go out here and run across that train track and that train just smashed you, son, where are you going to go? Well, clearly, clearly, every selfish person in the world is going to say, heaven, make hell hot and everybody's going to heaven. But that ain't the way Jesus did it. So the way a lot of us have experienced salvation, if we, we come to Jesus trying to preserve our life, and Jesus says this, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. If you were saved by a hot hell, you know that it did not produce the fruits worthy of repentance. Because I was, and it never did. Not only is the road hard that leads to life, but it is made even more difficult by the false prophets who are quite good as disguising themselves as fellow travelers. Notice this. Jesus doesn't warn us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about the persecution we will face as sinners or as Christians. He doesn't warn us about the coming persecution. He warns us about false prophets who would lure us onto a road that is easy. Jesus doesn't say, it's going to get hard if you worship me. If you submit your life to me, the Roman government will find out and you are going to be a threat to them. Therefore, in the same way that they extinguished me, they're going to try to extinguish you. He didn't say that. He said, your threat is among you. Well, what were those threats? What is a false prophet? Notice what Jesus points out here. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out many demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? How many of you know that most of the people that we esteem as those who are anointed by God are those who can prophesy, drive out demons, and perform miracles?
I don't know how many, how many times I've sat under teachings where the emphasis is on drive out demons, perform miracles, prophesy, and all the while, when, when they get struck on the right cheek, they come to blows. They don't offer the other. They have just as many enemies as every secular person you've ever met and openly gossip about them. They don't commit themselves to their wife the way the Sermon on the Mount would lead you to. Jesus said, I'll tell you how you can tell whether or not the prophet is true. Watch their character, not their charisma. I'll tell you, a prayer of mine has been answered this morning because my tone is different. And that's what I asked for. A Jesus, we'll get to that. That's, that's going to hit us too hard. I won't do that one yet. The fruits Jesus commands in his Sermon on the Mount, they are less sensational and they're more simple. They are revering Scripture's commandments. They are casting out one's anger. The miracle of sexual purity and marital fidelity. Here's you one. The careful speech that does not misuse God's name by oaths or careless speech. And most deeply, the heart that extends itself even to persecutors and enemies. This is the fruit worthy of a prophet who's telling the truth. Now here's an issue that we must address. When we start talking about kingdom of heaven, most of us have been hardwired to think we only get to see that when we die. Right? Anybody? We're, when I say kingdom of heaven today, I'm not talking about life after this life. Okay? We'll get to that. Here it comes. This is Scott McKnight again. He says, is Jesus hereby being a radical exclusivist or one who thinks few will enter the kingdom while the vast majority of humans, most of whom on the world stage have not heard of Jesus, will be sent to hell? Is this what Jesus is saying? Few will enter the kingdom while pretty much the majority of folks who've ever been created are going to hell. Do you know how many folks in the world are Christian right now? Not nearly enough to merit a claim like this one. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. How many of you have branded yourself as Christian before in your life and know that you did not produce fruit worthy of repentance? In, in this room. Come on, I need some hands up in here. I prayed this morning that we'd have more black people in this church. Because y'all ain't near loud enough for me. I'm going to tell you that. I'm serious. We know that we have branded ourselves as Christian and have not been the ones who could bless those who curse us, pray for those who spitefully use us. We know that we've branded ourselves as Christian and, and been so tempted to say, you fool, raka, whatever that meant. We know that we've branded ourselves as Christians and willingly given ourselves over to lust when we see someone worthy of lust. We know that we've done that. So, if that's the case with us, then how many Christians are there in the world? How many people do you know whose character is that of the Sermon on the Mount? 
If that's the case, then surely Jesus is not saying, unless your character looks like that of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to hell. Because if that's the case, see y'all in hell. I sure hope y'all are awake, because it's about to get good. Woo! See, I need somebody playing the organ, somebody going, yes! Anyone, anyone who makes a matter-of-fact claim regarding the after-death destination of any person should receive immediate dismissal. Y'all need to hear that. Anyone who makes a matter-of-fact claim regarding the after-death destination of any person should receive immediate dismissal. You don't know if anybody's anywhere after they die. And I don't either. And that's not what Jesus is trying to get us to see. He's not concerned about after death. He's concerned about now. In the debate about Christianity and the world's religions, it is fair to say that there has almost been an unquestioned assumption that the only question we've asked in our evangelical endeavor is what happens to the non-Christian after death? I want to say this. This is the wrong question. And as long as it remains the central question, we will never be those who walk according to the way of truth. Boy, this is a good sermon, and this is the kind that gets you fired. Thankfully, my wife makes my money. When, Christian, when Christianity is no longer reduced to the next age after death, we are then able to ask the essential question, and this is the question of today, the question of this sermon. So if you've been asleep, take you one of these right here. They are gifts, and they're free, and we don't even charge you for them right here. Through your nose. Get you one of those. It's time we get this. Here it comes. What is the meaning and goal of this common human story in which we are all Christians and non-Christians alike. What is the goal? Why are we here? That's what we gotta talk about today. Because that's why Jesus is giving these warnings. Brother Eugene Peterson, Saint Eugene Peterson says this. This is his rendition of this scripture. He says, be wary of false preachers who smile a lot. Y'all can judge me. Dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off somewhere or other. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Chopped down and burned. Here's, the, here's what I want you to see, though. False prophets aren't, this language of prophet is, is something that we, when we hear it, we, we immediately put it into church settings. But this could be anywhere. This is someone who is acting like they have accessed the truth of the universe, and now the only way you can get it is if you buy their books. These folks are, ain't even Christian doing that to you. We are all, whether or not we realize it, hear me here, we are all being discipled. Every single one of us are being discipled. 
You are submitting your life to the tutelage of a rabbi. We just got to figure out which one. Because every one of us are serving a teacher. Every one of us have somebody we say, they have what I want. And whether or not we realize that we are being formed into the image of the one we are following. A good way to examine that is, where do I spend most of my gaze? Where does my time go? Who gets most of my attention? Who am I trying to impress? That is probably my rabbi. So ask ourselves that question. Who's getting my attention? What has captivated me? And here's the most important question. Does that prophet bear fruit worthy of repentance? What do they think about money? How do they treat their spouse? Are they swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath? Do they consider the poor? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with preachers. Preachers. I use that word very intentionally because I hate that word. How many of you know everybody in this room is called to be a preacher? Did y'all know that? Guess what everybody in this room is not called to be? A pastor. Right. I can't tell you how many times I've heard preachers who have the position that I'm in right now, which is a pastoral position, tell me out of their own mouth, I love the preaching, I hate the pastoring. Well, my friend, you're a false prophet. Oh, shoot. We're saying some stuff today, son. Burning it down. Let's keep going. So the, the false prophet, they prophesy, they cast out demons, they do many deeds of power. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and the false prophet is trying to get them to prohibit marriage and trying to get them to abstain from foods. Well, why would they do that? This is a, there is a, a version of this still going on in the world today. I don't have time to get into all this. But I'm going to read you this little, this little part right here. This is a little, a little commercial break. Paul's admonitions here of the false teachers, the ones who are prohibiting marriage and requiring abstinence from particular foods, is influenced by a popular Hellenistic thought going on in that time that regarded spirit and matter. If the physical universe they deemed is evil, people who are truly spiritual should avoid any involvement with the physical universe. The more one withdraws from it into an ascetic life, the closer one is to the life God intended, which is why abstinence from food and marriage will be a practical result of such a view. Why do I take time to say that? Because y'all, there's too many people who are using the name of Jesus to exploit the followers of Jesus without submitting to the life of Jesus. I talked to too many of y'all in here who are submitted to, to teachers and, and who you've discipled yourself to folks who pervert the name of Jesus to exploit you so you'll serve them so that they can get you to serve whatever wicked, deceitful doctrine that they're handing out. If it doesn't look like the fruit of the Sermon on the Mount, it is the deceitful doctrine of devils. I, I, I know I ain't like me this morning. I, I want to be chilled out too. But I'm responsible for folks. 
I want to cut up too. Y'all been with me. All I want to do is laugh and drink beer. But one of us has got to get serious today. We'll get to drinking beer later. Because y'all thought, that was clearly think I'm the false prophet now. There's something very important we got to talk about right here. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. How do we know we believe the truth? When I moved to Knoxville, boy, my daddy got so worried about this. When I moved to Knoxville, I joined an Islamic community as an assignment for seminary. That's the key part. So I stopped shaving so that I could fit in at the mosque. I, I went in, it was a class called ethnography. In ethnography, you can't study as an anthropologist. Anthropologists go and observe from without. Ethnographers go and study from within. So I submitted myself to the Muslim community in Knoxville. I start going to the mosque, I start eating dinner at Khalid's house. I interview for a job at Yassin's Falafel House, which seven years ago was voted uh, friendliest restaurant in the United States of America. Thanks to Good Morning America. Y'all can look them up. Yassin's Falafel House. You'll see Yassin standing there smiling. I still have a group me on my phone, an active group me called Yassin's Falafel House. Next time you're in John, John, you should go next time you're in Knoxville. It's a great place to eat. And my responsibility was to answer the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? But I knew going in, Christians and Christians don't worship the same God. So that was a very faulty question. But I knew if I was to ask the question, do Christians and Christians worship the same God, I knew what I'd be looking for. I'd be looking for someone who believed the truth. I'd be looking for someone who didn't look like the majority because I know that this is not a majority way. This is a way that few find. This is a way where people who have money don't consider it theirs, but they consider it ours. I hadn't met many of those folks who believed the truth. I, I hadn't met many folks until I got to Knoxville, who would literally take a slap on the face and say, I'm still here for you. I hadn't met many folks who would actively every Wednesday and Friday find out who had hurt them and cursed them and betrayed them and actively pray God bless them and restore them. But I had found some folks. And so I knew what the truth looked like. So here's some of the things I started discovering about how do we know we're even on the way? How do we know we're even on the road that few find? Remember this. Jesus never defends what he believes. Jesus is being beaten, mocked, spat upon, ridiculed, and never once does he say, you'll see because you don't have to defend truth. 
And even when it looks like evil has buried truth, what we know in Jesus is that not even the ground can hold it. So, so what we see is that, okay, Jesus, defend yourself. Show them that you are the Son of God. Yeah, there are 10,000 angels waiting to say, I told y'all suckers. But if he had done that, he wouldn't have been the Messiah. And it's the fact that he can take it knowing you can't threaten what is real. Only a truth claim that values humility over inexorability has the claim to be truth. Well, here's where we stop and say, what the heck is inexorability? Somebody, what is inexorability? Somebody? Ken had it. It's this stubborn refusal to be wrong. Only a truth claim that values humility over the stubborn refusal to be wrong has a chance at being the truth. The statement, Jesus Christ is the truth, is one of the most dangerous statements anybody can say. Because if Jesus Christ is the truth, I must combat everything that is not. Jesus Christ is not a truth that we can say. He is only a truth that we can embody. Why do you say this, Cody? There is currently a war going on. Are y'all aware of this? That is liable to drag the whole world in, and it's been going on for centuries. And it is the opposite of what Jesus is trying to do here. He is clearly saying the, the contrary to what was going on in the time of the Crusades. Do you know Crusaders would go in and to convert entire nations to Christianity, they would say, convert or die in the name of Jesus. Well, guess who else says that? Anybody? Some of our Muslim friends. So do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? In that regard, absolutely right, they do. They worship the God of vengeance and wrath and control and impatience. Yeah, they do. They worship the exact same God. Woo, good Lord, I didn't know this would happen this morning. But we're getting there. To make the claim that Jesus is Lord is something we do with our ethic more than what we do with our mouth. What does that mean? To, to say Jesus is Lord is only something we can do by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul said. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If I say, just like Jesus said, Lord, Lord, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Lord, Lord, may this demon be cast out. Lord, Lord, um, I have a word. And my life does not look like one who is loving and merciful and patient and kind and gentle. Then I do not worship the Lord Jesus. 
I don't even want to finish this. I just read through it. I don't like it. We're going to stick with where we are. Judgment needs to begin first at my house. And what I learned from Jesus is that when it does, I will either show back up at the, my neighbor's house who I wanted to condemn and find that he did not have a speck, or I will at least be seeing clear enough to remove it from his eyes. I'm going to speak as candidly as possible. I'm going to shut this and shut this, and I, I just want to say what I'm trying to say this morning because I sometimes will speak real big and hope that, just hope that the Spirit meets everybody where they are. But I'm going to speak as matter-of-factly as I can this morning. Jesus is calling us to die. And until we do, there's no chance. He's calling us to die to the fear of people's opinions. He's calling us to die to the impatient temptation of anger. He's calling us to die to a misconception of freedom. He's calling us to die to vengeance. He's calling us to die to vindication. And he's saying, if you will die, I will give you life. If you will die, you won't have to die again. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with some of the scariest words ever. And the worst thing we can do is try to project it onto somebody else. The best thing we can do is say, God, am I on the narrow road? God, am I the false prophet? He's fine. God, am I discipled under a false prophet? God, what is my house built on? Is it rock or sand? Tell me now and just come on and let's wipe this thing clean. Let's have life. I don't want to wait, God, until the actual fire comes. Let's go ahead and burn it down. Let's go ahead and die now so that we don't have to die later. Because I'm telling you, a few of us are just holding on to this perception of life that is death and it's just sucking us, sucking the life out of us. And all he's saying is just, no, 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 just... Uh, if you could see, if you could see what's on the other side, you would willingly walk into the waters of baptism and say, just like you were buried, Jesus, bury me. And God, I trust that you will resurrect me into something that was way better than I ever could have been had I preserved my own life. Y'all, it is not often in our church that we will run across this opportunity because the way we do church is we pick a, a, a book of the Bible and we go through it line by line by line by line. 
I am not one who will get up here every week and preach a message that says, come to the altar and be saved. Come to the altar and be saved. But I'm telling you, I'm not the one who put us in this text this morning. God did. I'm not the one who gave Donnie the word this morning. God did. I'm, I'm telling you right now, there's an opportunity for somebody, and it's not usually here. Because I tell people all the time, this gathering is not for non-Christians. It's for Christians. I got good news for you. This gathering this morning is for people who thought they were Christian and ain't. And it ain't usually like that here. I'm sorry. We want to disciple Christians and form you into the image of God, which is why we don't give altar calls every week. But I'm telling you, there's a window. There's a doggone window. And we ain't going to miss it because it's time to eat. We ain't going to miss it because it's time to go somewhere else. If you got to go, it's time for you to go. That's fine. But there's some folks in here whose heart is burning. And I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll head straight to the doggone river and baptize your butts. I'm serious. Not for real. Somebody's getting baptized today. Alex going to help me. Yeah. I asked God this morning, I've never asked him this, ever. Never have I asked him this. I said, God, anoint me this morning to preach the gospel to those who are lost. I've never asked him that on a Sunday morning. Because I expect to meet my brothers and sisters here who are here to spur me on. But this morning what we're doing is we're saying, enough with the games. Let's die.